Well, hello. This is Get Ready for Sunday, a weekly podcast previewing the scripture readings assigned to the Masses to be celebrated in Catholic churches for the upcoming Sunday. The next several minutes will be devoted to the scripture assigned to Masses for Sunday, October 3rd, 2021, which is, if you're keeping score at home, the 27th Sunday of Year B in the lectionary cycle. I'm Deacon Mark from Corpus Christi Catholic Church in Tucson, Arizona. I'm not a scripture scholar. I'm just here passing along some analysis and background information gathered from genuine scholars and commentators as all that stuff is sifted through my own tiny brain. This week, we'll start with the second reading for the Mass. For the past five weeks, this second reading has been from the letter of James. Today, we start reading from the letter to the Hebrews. We'll be hearing selections from this letter until the end of the liturgical year, the Feast of Christ the King, coming up on November 21st. This letter is an example of how things can and do change in the Church as our scholarship advances. I grew up hearing this document referred to as St. Paul's Letter to the Hebrews. That's okay, except for three things. First, it was almost certainly not written by Paul or even one of his followers. The style of the Greek writing is so much more sophisticated and eloquent than that of any of Paul's other letters that it makes it very doubtful. Second, it doesn't really seem to be a letter. It's more like a sermon, an exhortation for Jewish Christians to persevere in the face of persecution. At that time, many were considering turning back to Judaism to escape being persecuted for turning to Christ. This doesn't mean just from the Romans. They faced much difficulty in their own Jewish community. And third, there's also the matter of the designation Hebrews. The letter was not a church letter in the sense that it was sent to a particular church or group of churches or to an individual to address particular needs. Instead, the letter is addressed to a specific group, the early Jewish converts to Christ who lived in and around Jerusalem around the years 63 to 70. The designation Hebrews generally applied to Hebrew-speaking Jews. Jews who spoke Greek were generally referred to in Scripture as Hellenists, So the Hebrew speakers are addressed in a highly stylized Greek letter? Go figure. Perhaps all these factors taken together with the absence of any claim of authorship explains why it is the only formally anonymous element of the Christian scriptures. The author of Hebrews plainly affirms Jesus as the Messiah, With the destruction of the famous Jewish temple in the year 70 by the Romans, the early Jewish Christians faced the loss of their spiritual focal point. Indeed, all Jews inside and outside Christianity had to struggle with the massive spiritual disorientation caused by the loss of the temple, the dwelling place of God on earth, the place where divinity and humanity met. The author of Hebrews offers them lifelines in all this confusion. One was in the uniquely Jewish concept of salvation history. 
this worldview saw history as linear, chronological time with a beginning and an end, that is, this age and the age to come. It also saw God as the author of time. In the beginning, everything came from God, and in the end, everything would return to God. Finally, it saw God active within space and time. The faceless God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was the living God, a God to be personally experienced, not made an object in stone or gold as an idol. The author places Jesus into the center of salvation history. He was the instrument and the reason for the cosmos. He humbled himself to be born as one of us and to die as all flesh does. Yet his death would be salvific. Through his suffering and death, he would destroy death for all and offer everyone a relationship directly with God. And through the same means, he would raise the status of all he saved, for he would call them brothers. The author of Hebrews presented his audience with the big picture, the Christ of God always, and Jesus, his incarnation. Jesus was the sign that God was at work in the world in a definitive way. As a fully human being, Jesus gave us a tactile way to experience God. Yet the Christ transcends our world to bring all back into unity in and through the triune God. Here then is a reading from the letter to the Hebrews. Brothers and sisters, He for a little while was made lower than the angels, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and through whom all things exist, in bringing many children to glory, should make the leader to their salvation perfect through suffering. He who consecrates and those who are being consecrated all have one origin. Therefore he is not ashamed to call them brothers. The Word of the Lord. There is one last thing to point out in this bit of Hebrews. That first line, He for a little while was made lower than the angels. Some might question this. How can God be made lower than the angels? How can Jesus, whose name Scripture assures us is above every other name and at whose name every knee should bend, how can he be lower than the angels? This is a reference to the fully human nature of Jesus, his ability to experience death in the flesh, and his willingness to do so. It is not a contradiction in either scripture or theology. The questions for your consideration related to this reading are, we end with the statement that Jesus calls us all brothers and sisters. What does that mean to you right this minute? Who, or what group, do you need to be more brotherly or sisterly toward? Are you going to do anything about it this week? 
Now let's look at the Gospel reading for Sunday. I'm putting today's Gospel ahead of the passage from Hebrew Scriptures because this passage both alludes to and contains a portion of our first reading. This is a challenging Gospel passage. I'll read it first and then get back to the background discussion. A reading of the Holy Gospel according to Mark. The Pharisees approached Jesus and asked, Is it lawful for a husband to divorce his wife? They were testing him. He said to them in reply, What did Moses command you? They replied, Moses permitted a husband to write a bill of divorce and dismiss her. But Jesus told them, Because of the hardness of your hearts, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, no human being must separate. In the house, the disciples again questioned Jesus about this. He said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And people were bringing children to him that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he became indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not prevent them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Amen, I say to you, whoever does not accept the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it. Then he embraced them and blessed them, placing his hands on them. The Gospel of the Lord. Note that Mark specifically states in the very beginning that the question to Jesus is a test. That signals the malicious intent of the Pharisees. First century Jewish society was a patriarchal society. Women and children were considered for most purposes as just property of the men. The Pharisees were the most popular sect within the Jewish community because they were the group that most literally interpreted Jewish scripture. Their interpretation generally bolstered the patriarchy. Within Pharisaic communities, there were two prominent leaders, Rabbi Shammai and Rabbi Hillel. On the question of divorce, Rabbi Shammai was more restrictive of males. He taught that for a Jewish man to divorce his wife, she had to be guilty of sexual infidelity, adultery, or another extremely serious offense. On the other hand, Rabbi Hillel taught that it took very little for a Jewish man to justifiably divorce his wife. Minor infractions, or even a man's disenchantment with his wife, could be grounds for divorce. With either interpretation, however, a divorced Jewish woman was left practically destitute. It was a patriarchal society. She would have no means to provide for herself or her children. 
The test the Pharisees posed for Jesus, what are the legal grounds for divorcing someone's wife, was not intended as a real inquiry. The Pharisees are testing Jesus about which Pharisaical group he and his disciples are aligned with, Shammai or Hillel. They are not interested at all in the welfare of the divorced woman or her children. True to form, Jesus is most concerned with those on the margins of society, and he does not care a whit about institutional squabbles. Take some time to remember where we are and what has happened recently in Mark's narrative. We are now in chapter 10 of his gospel. Jesus has just completed his ministry in the north and is making his way south to Jerusalem, where he will be crucified and die. These past few Sunday Gospels have taken a much different tone than the awe and wonder reported in the first half of Mark's narrative. It started three Sundays ago in chapter 8, when Peter famously proclaimed Jesus to be the Messiah. Then Jesus gave the first of his three predictions of his own suffering, death, and resurrection. Two Sundays ago, Jesus taught about the cost of discipleship, self-denial, bearing one's own cross, and following Jesus. Remember, at the time, the cross was nothing other than an object of ultimate shame and horrendous torture. Last Sunday, the gospel taught the seriousness of anything that would separate us from God. Everything, everything is subordinate to, and disposable if it impedes, maintaining right relationship with God. Those are all tough teachings. This week's passage is too. The next week is more of the same. Jesus seems to me to be giving a crash course to his disciples about the future that awaits them. We, too, occasionally need to be reminded that following Jesus is, on many levels, not at all easy. Always, however, is the promise of resurrection to a new fullness of life. Now, back to Jesus and the Pharisees. Once again, Jesus foils their test. The Pharisees were the strictest of the Jewish sects in following the letter of the law. Jesus, therefore, asks them what the Torah instructed about divorce. Now, Pharisees memorize the entire Torah. The Pharisees tell Jesus, Moses permitted a husband to write a bill of divorce and dismiss her. They are quoting Moses from chapter 24 of Deuteronomy. Jesus explains Moses allowed divorce because of the hardness of men's hearts. Moses introduced this law at the end of the Exodus, which had been anything but an easy journey. He was addressing a hard-hearted people, and there is a powerful sense in the words of Moses that he has had enough of them and acquiesces to human weakness. Jesus then quotes to the Pharisees the passage we hear today from the book of Genesis. From the beginning, God made them male and female. 
For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together no human being must separate. Jesus reminded his questioners of God's intention for marriage, that it was to be indissoluble. For humans to live in intimate community would be an ultimate reflection of the fact that God's self is intimate community, the Trinity. Moses, a man, allowed divorce contrary to God's intention. In this manner, Jesus deftly uses scripture to confound the so-called experts, and he springs their trap on them. God proposes the ideal. As in all things, human beings are flawed and often fail to meet the ideal. This is a good time to remember that in that time, the time of Jesus, marriage was not merely the union of two people. It was the union of two families. The families were allied, and that was truly important for prosperity and in some cases for survival. Anyone who's read or watched the Game of Thrones stories knows that. Remember also this questioning occurs in the context of a society where honor and shame are primary influences in one's standing. Bloodshed between families shamed by a divorced daughter. It's a patriarchy. Come into conflict with the husband's family. That would be common. The feud would put males against males. The primary shaming in this setting comes in the form of the adulterous male shaming the husband of his infidelity partner, the adulterous wife. Neither of the wives had any real social standing. Only men could be shamed. Eleanor Stump is a professor of philosophy at the University of St. Louis. She has written this about the inherent perils of even attempting to live up to the ideal of perfect marriage in contemporary society. She writes, Human beings have what angels lack. The glorious richness of embodied, gendered human life. But there is a fragility about this rich, embodied life, too. Those who do get married are open to each other and dependent on each other, and so they become terribly vulnerable to each other, too. The Catholic Church recognizes that some marriages, although valid in civil law, ultimately fail to rise to the level of sacrament. When that happens, there can be excruciating emotional pain and terrible consequences suffered as well. Such marriages might be annulled following a finding to that effect by a church tribunal, which is a sort of sacramental court. There is a tremendous amount of misunderstanding around the issue of annulment. There isn't time here to adequately correct all the misimpressions, and I am not, nor will I ever be, a canon lawyer. I have seen in others the depth of emotion, of woundedness, and of disorientation that comes with civil divorce. All I am qualified to tell anyone for whom this is an issue is this. The Church is concerned most of all with restoring wholeness, 
to every individual, and most importantly, wholeness in one's relationship with God. Every case must be treated as unique, because it is. The most painful thing one can do is hold on to one's deep pain because of misinformation or fear of the process of annulment, if this is a factor in your life. The process begins with your pastor. Back to the gospel and the last little scene where Jesus welcomes children despite the reluctance of his disciples to let them get to Jesus. What is this story doing here? Are we looking at the innocence of the children as contrasted with the hard-hearted men who would cast out their wives? No, I don't think so. Remember the setting and the culture. Children were also completely vulnerable, totally dependent on the goodwill of the head of the household in which they lived. They, like a divorced woman cast out from her husband and likely shunned by her own family, had no means of their own for simple survival. In his prohibition of divorce in the context of the day, Jesus is at once eliminating an opportunity that only men had to make a woman and her children destitute. At the same time, he is upholding the goal of the ideal. So the first part of the gospel today presents that high ideal. The second part, with the children, recognizes the painful reality. Father George Smiga, who currently serves on the scripture and homiletic faculty of St. Mary's Seminary and Graduate School of Theology in Wycliffe, or Wycliffe, Ohio, put it this way in a homily on this gospel passage. I have dealt with hundreds of people going through divorce. I do not know one who ended a marriage in a position of strength. They were all broken, their dreams dashed, their future uncertain. In their brokenness, they became the children who Jesus welcomes. Jesus is the first to welcome those who are broken. Others, like the disciples in today's gospel, might try to keep them away. But we should echo the words of Jesus and say, Let them come to me. Do not prevent them, because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And here are your gospel-based questions. Jesus became indignant with his disciples for impeding the children on their way to him. What makes you indignant? And is it justified? And what do you do when it happens? Since I've pretty much covered the day's passage from the Hebrew Scripture while talking about the Gospel, all that seems lacking is to read it. So here is a reading from the book of Genesis. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a suitable partner for him. So the Lord God formed out of the ground various wild animals and various birds of the air, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called each of them would be its name. The man gave names to all the cattle, all the birds of the air, 
and all the wild animals. But none proved to be a suitable partner for the man. So the Lord God cast a deep sleep on the man, and while he was asleep, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. The Lord God then built up into a woman the rib that he had taken from the man. When he brought her to the man, the man said, This one at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of her man this one has been taken. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, and the two of them become one flesh. The Word of the Lord Did you notice? The first marriage in the Bible is an arranged marriage. For that matter, so are the vast majority, if not all, of the marriages in Scripture. I have no point to make with that observation. It's just that I'd never thought of the Adam and Eve story that way before. Here's your question to ponder in relation to this reading. What would you say to someone who offered this passage as biblical evidence that men are meant to be viewed as superior to women? Where would you find your evidence to the contrary in the passage itself? Or in the rest of Scripture? That's all for this week's Scripture Preview. I pray you are able to celebrate the Eucharist this weekend in community, either online or in person, as you are able and as is allowed by your community's health. Please do take care of yourself physically and spiritually. May you always remain aware of our loving God's blessings and care for you.